If you only had one day at Disney, how would you approach it? We lived long enough in Orlando to know how not to approach it. We didn't have Jody Hilson, but uh, I could tell that, uh, that there were some folks that were just trying to get the very most out of every single moment, right? It's like they're saying to a four-year-old, I've refinanced our home for this. You will stay here till the very end of the day. You will love it. Well, on uh, Memorial Day of, of uh, 2012, I became that dad. You will enjoy this one day, right? So I looked on this website, how do you approach Disney in one day? And, uh, you know, you just get in this mindset. You're just like, hey, let's go to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And then pretty soon it's 3 p.m. and everybody is just wiped out. And uh, you've done, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean three times and nobody's even discovered it yet. And so, you know, it's amazing. You think of that's just one park, one park. And you think back to what Walt Disney said. It all started or it all was started by a mouse. It all was started by a mouse. Vision is powerful because when you can see it, then you can start to get a sense of not only what could be, but what should be. In, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, a vision drives a powerful revolution a reclaiming of a people and a territory and an identity. Nehemiah in, in Persia, the, during the age of the exile, the, the Israelites had long since been exiled by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is long since dead. The Persians have risen to power and have secured most of that region. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Second in command. It's a story that's, that's similar to uh, what, we, uh, what we learned from Esther. And when you speak truth to power, how careful you have to be. What we're going to see in just a minute is a man who was so compelled by vision, by not only what could be, he began to feel in his bones what should be as he as he considers how it is that Israel, you know, uh, across the land, over towards, over towards the Mediterranean, his people might regain footing again, might regain identity again, as they consider what it would take to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Vision, it begins with vision, vision of not only what could be, but what should be. From the Word of God, Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 11 and then through verse 20. Hear God's Word this morning. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the 
to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the, world's, of the words that the king had spoken to me. The king uh, had given him permission, that is, to go and do this work. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the, for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant of Geshem, of, of the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. May God bless us today through this, his holy word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you bless this word, not only to our minds that we may understand it, but also to our hearts and hands that we may receive it well and full and that we may live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Back to Disney. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I remember... Uh, First hearing about Walt, uh, Walt Disney World, and um, and our our class was going to go on a trip. And one of the things that I remember doing when I was in fourth grade was was uh, taking one of those little paperbacks that I should have been reading and putting little stick figures. You, you ever do this where you put just a little teeny uh, man on the side of the page, and so you 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 just kind of make him run across the page. Each one, maybe you do it like eighty pages, and then just go like that. And you watch that stick man run across and maybe do flips or maybe shoot an arrow and, and, uh, and, and hit somebody or something. And we used to do that. And, and I remember thinking, you know, this is exactly how, uh, how uh, animation began. Just by flipping the pages like that. One little stick figure. You think how powerful it is. It was all started by a mouse. All of the, the amazing animation that we enjoy today. Uh, you think of Pixar, you think of, uh, you think of going to one of these theme parks. It was all started by just writing a little stick figure on a page. Vision is powerful. How does vision motivate? That's our question today. Vision is powerful to motivate. Not only because you, 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 you see what could be, but you begin to feel what should be. When you can see it, then you can, you can begin to imagine it. And not only imagine it, 
but picture. Now, this is a great, this is a great uh, definition of vision. Uh, vision is a picture of a preferred future. Vision is a picture of a preferred future. And when you can see it out there in the distance, I like to think of it like a tree on a hill. You know, maybe the big mission is the hill you're going to take, but what's the tree up that hill? Vision is the picture of a preferred future. Vision motivates. How does it motivate? Let's look at a, a few ways that vision motivates. First of all, vision gives us direction. It gives us direction. It tells us we're not going to go all of these three, uh, you know, 359 other directions. We're going to go this direction. We're not going to go that way, that way, that way, that way. We're going to go this way. Vision gives us a sense of direction. It gives us a sense of what should be. It's the tree on the hill, up the hill. I remember reading a, a, a book um, about how destination helps you get direction. I thought, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Uh, you know, thanks a lot. You know, so if you pick where you're going to go, now you can know which way to go. And then I, I was reading the book even farther and farther along, and I realized this isn't about the concept. This is about the motivation. It's about not just saying, okay, we have the right idea, and we think we're going to go this direction, but to see it, to picture it enough to be able to, to feel that you, you just have to go there now. It's too beautiful a picture that's been painted. It's, it's an achievable future now. We've articulated it, and we can, we, can, we can dream it, and now we can begin to do it and to achieve it. You see, this is what the wall represented for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is back in Persia. In the first chapter, you see he's, he's wrestling. It's, it's, the, it's the, the month of Nisan. And so when you can see, you can track between when he heard about what's going on in Jerusalem and how there was just a, a sad lack of order, even though the temple had been rebuilt by Cy under uh, King Cyrus and, and, and completed under King Darius, now you have Artaxerxes, who is ruling over Persia, and in line of that same tradition, under the edict of, of Cyrus, uh, these different conquered peoples are being given permission to form again, to, to, to bring some order, to restore order to their homelands. And, and, and here is Nehemiah hearing about the lack of order in his homeland, the lack of security in Jerusalem and in all of Judah. And he's picturing the tree on the hill is the wall restored around Jerusalem. If we can just restore that wall, we can restore order and we can begin to have dignity and identity as a people again. Post-exilic, that is the, after the exile, post-exilic, second temple Jerusalem began not just with the temple restored, but with the identity that comes from having the, the sparkling city on a hill, Jerusalem, restored in all its security, all the gates and the walls. It's the picture of the preferred future. A lot of times, you and I, when, when we're living day to day and year to year, season to season, we're very, we're very busy, and, and a lot of times we project busyness. It's like I'm important because I'm busy, right? And, and so if, if you call and, and it's somebody and 
and, and you have to get through several layers to get to them, or if there's no way they could have lunch with you today because obviously they're too important not to. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to plan like three weeks out because we're all so busy, and the more that we project busyness, the more important we are, and so we get busy. Sometimes we get busy not just to project important. We, we get busy just because we don't want to think about things. We don't think about what, what's important, what's meaningful, what's, what's purposeful, what's our priority, and so we chase woozles. We chase woozles. Anybody know what that means? No Winnie the Pooh fans? Nobody's reading Winnie the Pooh there, kids. Chasing woozles, all right? So Winnie the Pooh and Piglet are, are walking around this big tree, and they see these footprints in there, and they realize, hey, we're, we're, we're on the track of something, right? And then they go around again and say, hey, there are more of them. And they go around the, the third time, hey, we're, we're, and so they, they're chasing these woozles, and, they re- and then later on they realize, okay, they, they were actually their own footprints in the, in the dirt or in the snow or whatever there. They're chasing woozles. A lot of times our busyness is just simply us chasing woozles. We're busy and we feel like life is meaningful because there's a lot of stuff for us to do. But, you know, I, I feel this in the church. Sometimes uh, I'm, I'm doing the, not, not the work of the church, but just doing church work. You feel that in your family and you feel that in your business you know, even, even vacation, you think of, vacation could use a vision, right? This is actually really good advice. If, if think of that, your next vacation, and you've got people who have different expectations about what you're going to do. One person wants to just totally relax and not do anything, not, not plan anything, nothing. To, to be on vacation is not to make decisions, all right? Okay, another person is saying, no, no, we've, we've got we've to eke it out. We're getting back together, and we've got we've to we've make sure that, that every moment is filled with something, right? You've got to have a vision. What is your vacation for? What's it for? Well, is it for, is it for relaxation? Is it for reconnecting with family? Is it, is it for, for recreation? It, it, what's it for? And if you can decide what it's for, then you, at least you have a picture you have a vision of what it, and then you can get everybody together on the same page with the same kinds of expectations. You see how powerful it is, even for a vacation. But so, so many times we just, we just get busy doing things. We don't even think about why we're doing it. We don't even think about the vision that we have for it. We don't even begin to think about what our priorities are. The same can be true for, it can be true for your, your, your vacation. It can be true for your family life. It can be true for your Friday night. It can be true for your business. It can be true for this church. You know, FPC uh, has had a vision team in place uh, during the year of, of 2017 and, and 2018. And, and, and to spend that time, that you, you think of uh, Nehemiah's uh, uh, almost half a year of, of just wrestling with the fact that the knowledge that there was disorder in Jerusalem before he even begins to think about uh, uh, approaching Artaxerxes, the, the king of Persia. And, and that's what we've been doing, just thinking about what is it that, that unites us? What's our common? What's our tree on the hill? What, what, what makes us as a church? What brings everybody shoulder to shoulder? What, what gives us a, a, a sense of common purpose so that we don't just have a lot of uh, an extended table of, of offerings at the church, right? 
not just this long buffet table, and then we keep adding length to it and length to it, and then down here, somebody else wants to add a whole nother pot of green beans, and, and, and this person down here is just trying to, trying to keep the, uh, the, the, the little Bunsen burner uh, lit on the mashed potatoes down here, and then somebody else wants to add a, you know, a, you know, several casseroles, and, and people are coming in, and they're saying, where do I start? Where does this table start? And how do I get a balanced diet, right? Church can become that way. Your family can become that way. You, you, the clutter of life, the offerings of life, the opportunities can, can, can create busyness that doesn't have a clear vision and purpose. So direction can motivate because it tells us which way to go. And it tells us the way that we not only could go, but the way that we should go. We can picture it, the picture of a preferred future. Vision motivates by giving us direction. Vision also motivates by giving us permission. Permission. Again, like Esther approaching the king, Nehemiah, even though he was cupbearer to the king, even though the king in chapter 1 recognizes that uh, he, he he had a close enough relationship with Nehemiah, the king did, that he could recognize that his, he was crestfallen. He was sad. He calls him out. He said, What's, why, why are you so sad? This wasn't just a, a functional servant. This was somebody that, that was a trusted advisor to the king. And even so, there was huge risk in him expressing his concern about his homeland. But he was specific. He didn't just give this vague picture. He didn't just say, hey, you know what? I just kind of want to go back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, and just kind of see what's up. I mean, I want to try to to figure it out. We want to get there, and we want want dignity to be restored. We want want, uh, the identity of, you know, he, he wasn't just speaking in these generalities in terms of values. He had a particular concrete vision. He said, I need to go back, and I need to help restore the wall, and I need I need camels. I need, uh, I need cedar. I need, uh, I need uh, iron. I need, and he, he gives them all the, a concrete list of things that he needs to build a particular thing, to build this wall. And, and he gets permission, external permission. You, have, you need external permission because there's a certain cost to the people around you, Right? So if you're going to pursue a vision, there's an external permission that you have to have and an internal permission. The external permission is sort of counting the cost, not just to you, but to the people around you. What's the cost to achieve this? And so to be able to articulate your vision is to say, this is what the cost is. This is the cost. And so he gets permission from from the king. And and not only that, the king gives him uh, letters and certificates, rites of passage on the way there across the desert and through towns and provinces. He gets permission because he's counted the cost, because he's been specific. He said, it's not just generally these are the things we value, and I want to get back to Jerusalem to, to try to rally the troops to value these things. I want to build a wall, and this is what I need. And this is how much time I think it's going to take. But you also need internal permission. And that gets to where we are in chapter 2. 
He's walking around, and you can see he's going at night. He's going during the day. He's going through some gates. Some gates he doesn't even have to go through. He just barely even knows that it's a gate. Why? Because of the rubble. It's a mess. It's sad. And sometimes we need permission to have a vision, right? Because, Because when we have a vision... We have permission to look at the rubble. When you have a vision, you have permission to see, to look at the the brutal facts. But you also have great hope or unwavering faith. You see, sometimes we need internal, we, we need internal permission. And so we need a vision to be able to see what's broken so it can be restored. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the idea about change. Change, sometimes change requires that the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of doing it differently. The pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of getting moving towards your vision. But see, what vision does is it gives you hope. It gives you a a picture of a preferred future so you can look at how bad it is in the present. You have permission to say, you know, this, this could be not only... Could this be better? It should be better. And then the vision begins to motivate through the permission to say, you know what, this really is broken. And it's okay to say that. You know, sometimes I'm, when, when, I'm, when I'm evaluating things around here, uh, people just kind of, I, I can tell they stiffen up a little bit. So, hmm. Did you just say that? You mean we're not perfect? You mean this isn't the best church of all time? And this is like, are we allowed to, are we actually allowed to say that we're not doing some things well? On everything, First Presbyterian Church is somewhere between zero and 100%. <laughs> right? You've heard me say that before. I say it often because that's a mindset that says we're not there yet. We're on the way. And what vision does, and, and when we paint a vision like we've been painting this vision for, uh, for reach, being an outward church, a church of influence in the city, a church that, that reaches out not only around the world but around the corner, we can then look at ourselves and say, how is our system producing that kind of influence? Is it? When you say, we, we want to be a church of influence in Thomasville, when, when, when we want to help Thomasville rise and elevate it, particularly in, in forgotten, marginalized communities, we, we then have permission to look at ourselves and say, is the way that we're spending our time, the way we're grouping up, and the things we're spending money on, and, and the way we're structured, is that producing that result? And we can actually say, you know what? In some areas, we're doing very well. In other areas, we're not achieving that. And when you believe in the vision and when you're tied into the vision and we're shoulder to shoulder in, in looking in that same direction, it's okay to say, no, there's some things that aren't quite up to snuff so that you have permission to work on them. And then the pain of staying the same becomes worse than the pain of moving ahead because you begin to feel not only what could be, but it should be. It should be. See, vision gives us permission, not only external to count the cost, but also internal to look at the rubble. And then, finally, vision gives us an approach. 
Can you see us moving towards that tree on the hill? The idea that we're a church of outward influence, not just a chapel of comfort. Now, we need to be a chapel of comfort. We need to be people who, who can do one another well. We, 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 we can care for each other. You know, you're all on a care team, and everybody, when something happens, like, like with, with, uh, with the recent uh, with, with, with some of the recent pastoral care things, it's just so nice to be able to say, okay, here's the t- care team coordinator, and that person can put it out there to that segment of the church and say, anybody want to bring a meal? Anybody want to write a note? Anybody want to make a phone call? Boom. Everybody's on a care team. If you're at FPC, you're a member, you're a part of a care team, and, and we are responding to each other. But if we're going to be an outward influence church, a church of outward influence, not only do we have to recognize that, that we're called together to, to be a place kind of like a chapel of comfort, but not limited as a chapel of com- comfort. We're a people on mission with a particular direction we call a vision. And vision gives you an approach. It gives you an approach. What, what, what Nehemiah does is he not only has the picture of the wall, he not only has permission uh, to, to count the cost and, and to look at the rubble, but he also has a particular approach. You can see in, in, this, in this chapter, and, and then uh, the rest of the chapter, if you read, it gets very specific. He employs the people where they are, all around the city. Who repairs the dung gate? Who repairs uh, you know, the, 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 this, uh, this particular area over here, this part of the wall over here? The people that are living across the street from it. That's who, that's who does it. That's his approach. It's a distributed approach. It's to say, look, tidy up where you are. Just, just everybody just start piling the rocks back up of the wall. Just begin to build. Just, you know, don't just inch by inch, right? You, you swallow the elephant bite by bite, and everybody is, is taking a little bite of that elephant right where they live. And you can see right across the street, they'll, it'll describe they're working on that gate because they lived across the street from that gate. And so he looked around the city. He, he, he had the vision. He, he specified that this was the goal and we weren't turning back. And even though Sanballat, who was sort of the provincial king, he was threatened by this idea that Jerusalem was going to rebuild its walls and the people of Israel were going to regain their strength. He had the king on his side, the king, the king of Persia, the one who was the, the 800-pound gorilla in the whole region, region right? So Sanballat had to stand back. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything, or he would have brought the wrath of, of, uh, of Artaxerxes down upon him. And so they stiff-armed him. They said, look, we're, we, and, and so he began to help Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem, the Israelites, distribute this work. Many hands make light work, right? It's like when you see that big table and you think, how am I going to lift that table? And then you got 10 people in the room. You say, everybody just grab a corner, right? And everybody just lifts with one finger. That's how he approaches it. Why does he approach it that way? Not just because it's expedient. Not just because it's expedient. Now, don't think, don't think, okay, well, that's just strategic. That's just smart. Um, you know, he's distributing this work because it's strategic. There is a very important and particular reason. It's the reason why, uh, why um, uh, you heard Revelation read at the beginning of, of this service by Schuyler. The reason why ne- uh, Nehemiah distributes the work and involves the people 
is not just because he wants the wall to help secure Jerusalem, but because he wanted to begin to restore the dignity and identity of Israel as an outpost to the kingdom of God. You see, it's the people. And, and so he begins with the end in mind. A people who are participating in building and restoring the kingdom of God must involve the people. Not just some subgroup that's elected and on a three-year rotation, right? Not just people in pointy hats and robes, right? I don't wear a pointy hat. Not just an elite class of super Christians who are doing it right and we all sort of admire them because they're closer to 100% uh, than the rest of us, but everyone just lifting the part of the table where they are. You see, he begins with the end in mind because he recognizes that Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is just a metaphor for the people of God and a kingdom of God that is coming, that's going to be restored. And you say, well, Tim, what does this have to do with, with our faith, with the New Testament faith, with things to come? Well, it, it is in and of itself what God repeats over and over again, that he identifies his people. He pours his spirit into his people. He calls his people together. He calls them to make this world a little bit more like what it's going to become. And in participating in what that picture is going to, what, what that that picture does for us, and it takes us a little bit closer to being like the kingdom. In participating in it, we become more like citizens of that kingdom. We start acting more like citizens of that kingdom. You know, there's, in the early part of the 20th century, there was this false dichotomy between churches that were orthodox, biblical in their belief, Right? And churches that were about social action or social justice. Because some churches were being leveraged by a particular social agenda. And some people would look at that thing and say, you know, that's not really... That may make you feel better about that issue. But that actually in the long run is not helpful to the people that you say you're trying to help. And so there, was a, there, there, there opened up this big divide between social action churches and Bible churches, right? And so even in mainline churches, where you would think there'd be more integration of that, there, the churches began to line up on the, on the left and on the right in terms of whether it's social justice or whether it's uh, biblical faithfulness. A false dichotomy, because what you see is Jesus, what does he do in Mark chapter 2? He heals the person Justice, right? Equity, restoration, physical healing. And then he, but, but, but first he says, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus does both. And time and time again, what he's doing is he's saying, he's saying our faith in the gospel is all about the whole picture. You know, I've, I have had people question that whether if we get more involved in, in being active in the city, hands-on, if we're thinking in those terms, are we getting our eye off the ball? And the answer is, no. You see, that's a false dichotomy that, that there's a distinction between 
churches that are going to be about, and, and, and faith communities that are, that are about social justice, and those that are about uh, orthodoxy or biblical faithfulness. You see, if you're going to be biblically faithful, then your biblical faithfulness is going to get into everything. It's going to get into every layer of your life. And it's going to help you become more of a citizen of the kingdom of God and begin to see a vision and a picture of the way everything should be. And that by your faith, you're motivated by that picture of how things are going to be. And you're motivated to get involved and make things better now. You see, what happened is, by this false dichotomy, there's a huge trend for, for decades that said, you know what Christianity is about? It's about getting into heaven. Four spiritual laws, you get into heaven, you got your ticket, good. Go and do what you want to do. And there's a disintegration of faith. If someone's criticizing me for calling us into the city, for calling us to be a church of outward influence, then there is a disintegration of faith between what we say we believe that's biblical and what we see, the way we see that expressed in everyday life. And so vision gives us an approach where we all are participants in being active citizens in the kingdom of God now. Right now. And you say, well, when did this start? And the answer is, it was all started by a cross. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you help us as your people express an outward expression of your gracious gift of reconciliation with you and with each other, an outward expression of that reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation between us and God, between us and each other, between us and the world that is and the world that is to come. Lord, would you give us that clear picture and our place and our next steps in it? In Jesus' name, amen.